If you're an adult amateur horse lover who wonders what it takes to make magic with horses, you're in the right place. I'm Paige Lockton, and this is The Magic of Horsecraft. Join me for conversations with wizards in the world of horsecraft about the ingredients needed to build connection with horses and courage in life. Turns out these things are connected. How do I know? <laughs> like most things, I learned the hard way. I lost the magic I once had with horses. In regaining it, I discovered that the elements of connection are learnable. Whether you ride your horses forwards, backwards, or sideways, stick around for stories that show us how we are the same and that anything is possible. Take a chance. When I met William Micklem in February of 1989, I must confess that I have I had no idea who he was or what a big deal he was. <laughs> Forgive me, but I was only 18 years old and the internet hadn't been invented yet. Nowadays, if you haven't heard of William Micklem, a quick Google search will tell you that he is one of the horse world's most iconic figures. His articles appear in respected publications like the Chronicle of the Horse and cover topics from breeding sport horses to the evolution of our sport and the importance of producing happy horses. He's a sought-after speaker and a published author, is known for breeding multiple world and Olympic medal-winning horses, for producing top-level riders, and for supporting the love and growth of good horsecraft from the grassroots level on up. His love for horses shines through everything he does, most notably spurring him to invent the Micklem Bridle, a more comfortable, humane bridle that accommodates the anatomy of the equine jaw, which has won industry awards and been embraced by riders worldwide in every discipline of horse sport. William has continued to provide guidance and inspiration in my life since meeting him as the recipient of a Young Riders Scholarship that brought me to the Glen Eagles Captain Mark Phillips Equestrian Centre in Octorard or Scotland as an 18-year-old. Since then, we've become unlikely pen pals through tumultuous times, and I've come to admire him for his sunny, holistic view on life. I have a special treat for you today. I interviewed William about what defines horsemanship across the disciplines and mentorship across the millennia. And in it, he shares a few special secrets. Find out about his three S's and his kiss rule for keeping it safe, simple, and sunny his three F's, and what PA, PB, and PC mean to him. Be sure to follow William on social media and watch his empowering TEDx talk, The Go Rules, How to Run Your Own Race and Thrive in Sport and Life. Look for the link in the show notes below. I trust you'll enjoy today's show and look for some other links about William in a blog post I wrote about my time with him. Let me know your thoughts and remember, Caring is sharing. Please like and share. Take a chance. Uh, so today we're working on uh, helping humans and horses understand one another better uh, for both of their benefits. Um, in my lifetime with horses, and I'm sure with yours, we were so lucky to learn from generations of horsemen before us some beautiful systematic approaches and I've found that since the world has changed uh, since the 80s or 90s, that a lot of that has ceased to be available for people. So the average new rider might come with no uh, animal experience 
um, from their job banking and they want to learn how to ride. And it's very hard for them to make this dream they hold and this image they have of what I call magicians of the horse world, working their magic with the horses. And these poor muggles, these non-magical people or non-horsey people have a hard time accessing that. So what I'm hoping to do, <laughs> that's all right, every horseman has a dog. <laughs> You've already raised a number of points. Uh, but I would definitely say that I understand why you use the word magician or magic, but as you well know, every magic trick can be repeated. It's purely method. Absolutely. Um, and I went to a, a wonderful talk the other night um, by somebody who is worried about uh, the communities in the west of the uh, west of Ireland being lost as more people move away to the cities. And he was saying, whenever a person dies, it's like a library being burnt down. Yes. With all of that knowledge that's been lost, you know, it, it, it was, wasn't such a long time ago when the majority of people used horses for their work, for their transport, et cetera. Mm -hmm. uh, and now of course it's the minority. And so there's been a huge amount of knowledge that's being lost, but there's another side to that coin in the horse world, which always worries me is, I have a huge horse library. And if you look at uh, uh, Amazon or any of these search stations for horse books, there are more horse books than for any other sport. And that's a fact. Interesting. And that's a problem. Uh, and it comes back to the fact that horses are so compliant, so willing, that we can do so many different things with them to get the same end. Right. And your first reaction may be, well, this is wonderful. It works, what's the problem? But the problem is if it doesn't go to a higher level. The problem is if it doesn't work for all sports. The problem is if it takes a great deal of hard work as opposed to being easy and simple. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, there's more than one way to roam, but we need to look for one of the very quickest ways. And unfortunately, people can be led astray by uh, some of the books that you might, might be available that, as I said, in particular, don't work for a wide enough breadth of activities. And if somebody wishes to go to a higher level, stop them going to a higher level, which is why then you have all of this relearning and relearning for a horse or for a rider, as you well know, is so time consuming and wastes potential. Which leads me nicely to your early years, if I might bring it up at the start, because otherwise I'll forget. When I first came across you at Glen Eagles, just a couple of years ago, when you came over from Canada to Scotland on a scholarship organized by Captain Mark Phillips. Um, the idea was that you got a young person and you instill good basics in them, good basics which will then allow you to flower in whichever direction you want to go. Uh, so that's important. But the number two thing is you probably suffer yourself, and from my brief contact with you, with imposter syndrome. You are not as uh, you're not going to always have the belief in your own ability and you stand up there and you have these wonderful ideas and you're a great communicator and there's a little voice in the back of your head, I think sometimes Paige, which says, you know, am I really good enough to be here? Imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. But I would, I, uh, I've always been so impressed by you. And in those early days at Glen Eagles, 
I was looking back on one of my little reports, but I didn't really have to look at the reports because I have some rules in life. And rule number one is have a go. Mm -hmm. And you always had a go. And rule number two is have another go. And you always had another go. But the key is, is to do it uh, having asked questions and saying, how can I improve it? With the aim is to produce the goods, is to do things well. And you made that little progression uh, so easy for me as a coach. And the, the highest praise comes from me to you for that. Well, I thank you so much, William. Um, and I'm so glad you're just the perfect person to start this off. Um, and if I may grab some of those threads that I heard you share and continue um, about methods and horsemanships and books. So I think it can be terribly confusing to buy into different methods and different disciplines of equestrian sport, whether it be they dressage or jumping or Western, will sell their different methods. But as the daughter of a veterinarian, I saw every kind of horse person of horse use come in through our door from workhorses um, to Western gamers to standard breads. And I was always looking for the common threads, what united them, um, what, how did they communicate with their animals? So I think the method is less important than understanding the brain and the needs of our horse friends who are prey animals that need to live in social groups and have access to movement. And how do we do that and enjoy them in today's modern stables? And how do we take their needs and understand then um, how to train to elicit a response? I think the background understanding of how they think and what they need can then, if understood, be taken forward in any discipline. And then you can make um, informed decisions about your coaching or care or how you're gonna approach a certain problem to solve or something to teach. Um, and when I start pulling back the threads and the commonalities between disciplines, I just have so much fun. Um, no matter how someone rides a horse forward, backwards, sideways, do they drive it? Is it a lawn ornament? I really, um, I don't care. I'm not a um, snob or an advocate of one discipline over the other. Um, I want people to understand the species, no matter what they do with it. Um, so I've made a list of some of the common threads um, between good horse craft, I'm calling it horse craft, to get rid of the man out of it, <laughs> horsemanship, horsecraft. And um, today we're talking about the foundation. So what good horsecraft looks like um, and telling stories because we learn from stories. <laughs> and I know you have some good ones. So what I wanted to start with really was what good horsemanship has looked like in your world. And maybe you have a story of something you've witnessed where you were like, oh, it's just a beautiful piece of horsemanship. Maybe a story to share. You used a, a phrase to me the other day about when you're in trouble. And that phrase was, Never holler woe in a tight spot. Was that it? Never holler woe in a tight spot. I like that. I, I've, I've learned that. 
but I, a lot of people would immediately immediately relate that to when you're riding doing higher level work but the horse has to have freedom freedom to become a partner and that starts at the very earliest stage you've already made a mention of it but in terms of freedom for the horse it doesn't start when you're on the back it starts that'll stop that's okay it starts in the early days when they're in the field hopefully in the field because they can socialize with other animals and they can have space i think it's sheer cruelty when horses are not given the opportunity both to go out into bigger spaces hopefully also up and down hill hopefully also through water we have a we have a, a wonderful uh, environment in ireland to turn horses out and i think in canada the same you have space we're very lucky but the uh, the when i witness young horses spending the majority of their early years in a very contained area a stable or a uh, and a small turnout area that's normally flat or a small outdoor school that's flat, my, my heart just bleeds. So the absolute driving force of horses is to eat little and often on the move. And everything stems from that. And I don't keep horses in single stables, even the competition horses. I keep horses in small groups. Uh, and there's absolutely no reason why horses can't be kept like this. As you probably know, uh, tens of thousands of horses, even competition horses in Australia and New Zealand are kept in this way. The more natural that you can keep the horses, the better. And of course, in Western riding, they've kept horses this way for, for yonks anyway. Uh, we, we feel we're doing a service to our horse by building a beautiful stable might spend a small fortune on that beautiful stable but what we're doing is we're making that horse a prisoner and not only do we have too much inactivity just standing still in the stable but the whole process of eating little and often is disrupted so uh, the wild horse in nature will spend about 65 percent of its time the research would show in eating and a stabled horse spends about 15% of its time in eating. So there you have the problem. You have 65% of its time in the wild. It's eating a little bit, wandering a bit, eating a bit, wandering a bit, and only 15% in, in, in these stable conditions. And it's this inactivity and isolation and uh, inability to be able to be like a horse that causes such a problem. So that, that freedom is important. And then there is the, the type of freedom at an early stage uh, to be around either horses that understand them, and that's not so difficult, but it, as with children, it takes a little while for children to understand other children and adults. The same with horses, but soon they work out a pecking order and they work out what's what, and they socialize and mutual groom and do these sort of things, no problem. But also because we must be practical, we have horses to work with humans, hopefully the horse will meet somebody with feel. And it doesn't matter what sport you want to do with horses, but it's that feel, that ability to, to actually get into a horse's head and think like a horse that makes all the difference. And you can say some people just do this naturally, but people do it because they observe, because they learn, because they study, and we can do this. I, I was uh, 
lucky enough to be brought up by my father with horses who had uh, a, a great feel for horses. And the strange thing was that he was brought up in a military way and he went to war. And with people, he probably didn't deal with them with the same feel that he had for horses. So he was stuck in a tradition with people of how you respond to younger people, how you respond to adults, uh, which was quite formal. But with horses, it, he immediately was different. And he was lucky enough to meet uh, people in his early life who had this feel and it just um, uh, transposed to him. And I remember we were, we were, he used a, what he called a cult breaking box but there's nothing breaking about it. You know, it's starting a horse. And a colt breaking box, it was the size of a sort of Monty Roberts round pen, but it actually was square. But the basic method was the same. And he learned this from the Argentine polo players, who in turn, uh, there were a lot of people who, who learned it in Mexico by and large. And uh, so this idea that Monty Roberts' stuff is absolutely, is all brand new is not been around for some time. And in those days, just after the Second World War, the only horses that would be sent to my father who had a horse business would be the ones that were very difficult because there was a much wider breadth of knowledge and people dealing with horses. So very few, very, there were so many people starting young horses that it was only the very difficult ones that were sent to my father. And he would do the Monty Roberts type of thing in his colt breaking box and within an hour, half an hour to an hour, you'd open the top door and there he was with the horse with his tack on and at peace. And the horse would be ridden away and going well in three days. And in three weeks, it would have a very sound education. And then it was on to the next one. But we had this one particular mare who was out of a mare called Black Velvet, who had never been ridden. And this horse um, uh, I named L'Empereur, it was supposed to be called Little Emperor, but at its first show, I couldn't say Little Emperor properly. So I said Little Emperor, and it became L'Empereur. But L'Empereur uh, took, without a word of a lie, 12 months, 12 months before he would allow anybody to ride him in a regular way. And uh, what was interesting was first that my father was prepared to allow this. I mean, obviously a very talented little horse, and the only person who could ride this horse was my brother, Charlie. And the only way that you could get on Rampereur was to let Rampereur canter off. And as he cantered off, you'd vault on. But if you tried to contain him and make him stand still, or stick him against a wall, you were in serious trouble. So there was just that element of freedom which allowed you to get on Rampereur. And Charlie, a, a fantastic horseman, who also had this in his whole style of riding, he wasn't ever dominant. He gave Rampereur that sense of freedom and Rampereur just progressed in, in, in leaps and bounds. And in fact, Charlie, Charlie rode in his racing saddle all the time. That shows you how free and easy he was. Uh, and he went to the Pony Club Championships when it was at Cheltenham Racecourse. We have a very famous Cheltenham Racecourse where we have our racing uh, National Hunt Championships every year of the festival. But in the early days before that, and he was second best boy to Richard Walker on Plucky Pasha, who two years later won badminton. That shows you the sort of standard. And L'Empereur was sold to, we, we didn't keep our 
we you know we kept our horses for, for the year and then they were sold on. Lomperer um, went to some inventing people and he went all the way through to advanced and he went to Burley and I went to see him at Burley horse trials, so the highest level of horse trials that you can get, despite the fact that Lomperer was only 15-2, that sort of size. And very sadly, in the open war, he was steaming around the cross country, fantastic. But they used to have an open water at Burley, about 12, 14 foot of just straight open water. And him with a little bit of probably a pony blood in him thought this was a waste of time to go all the way over the whole thing. And he jumped in it and he broke his leg. Oh, no. So that was very sad. But before Lomperon, oh, no. I know, so sad. But there's a, there's a point to this rather long story. Before Lomperer, we had a, a, a mare, which we named Duchess of Argyle, after a lady that was in the Sunday papers doing naughty things. And <laughs> Duchess was just like Lomperer, except that Duchess actually was a little easier. She only took nine months. And we all thought that my father was totally out of his head. You know, what a money, time he was wasting on this mare. And she was, unlike Lomperer, she was quiet in the stable, totally quiet, totally quiet to put the tack on. But as soon as you, in the early days, as soon as you did the girth up, you'd turn around, the next moment you'd hear a little plop and the saddle would be on the floor. And she would duck her head down, lift her four legs up and shoot the saddle over her head because the horse doesn't, because of course the horse doesn't have the collarbone. It's quite easy to do that. But when she came, I mean, my father used to sit on, the, he didn't have, he only had one lung. He used to sit on the front of a car and drive the horses up and down the roads and stop at the local pubs, giving time and attention to the horse um, uh, until they began to settle and trust and confidence was developed. But she became so quiet that I rode her and I was frightened as a youngster. So I rode her, that shows you how quiet she was. And Duchess was sold to Judy Bradwell, who some of your listeners may hear of or learn about. She's, she's been to Canada many times. She was one of Britain's very best event riders and Duchess of Argyle was her first open event horse and actually she won the Pony Club Championships on her first of all and then became an open event horse so she was wonderful. Mm. Now at the same time both of those were out of the same mare. My father discovered a third uh, uh, gelding out of the same mare, better looking and the joy of joys unlike the other two nobody had got their hands on this one. So the other two people had failed with, they'd learned all the tricks because of that previous handling. But this one was untouched and was bigger and mm. fantastic. But day one into the cult breaking box, there were a bit of noise, et cetera. And then, then father came out and no, I didn't make a lot of progress. Try again tomorrow. Day two, didn't make a lot of progress. Day three, what did he do? He took, put the horse in the box, took it down to the kennels and the horse was put down. And he did a, an autopsy was done and it had a tumor on the brain. But my point is the feel of my father was such that he knew that Lomperer and Duchess of Argyle were highly intelligent, learnt all the tricks, but they weren't in any way nasty right. whereas, or something wrong with them. Whereas the third one, it wasn't a question of being nasty. That was the wrong word to use. The third one was there was something not right. Mm -hmm. And I've come across these horses myself, my own experience before, uh, since then. And he had the horse put down and it had the tumor on the brain. And I remember also the first, uh, 
uh, one of the time, you know, you, you think back and you feel guilty about certain things. Yes. And, and it's important not to put those in the, in, in the back of your brain and forget about them because they're all lessons which you can learn from. And I was at this dressage place and I was a youngster who was cocky and thought that I could do everything and I could make horses do things. And I rode this horse and it, they said, oh, you can't hack it, it'll just nap. So I said, I'll ride that one. And I hacked it around the block on day one with a lot of kicking and a few slaps. And I hacked it down the block the second day, the same kicking, same slaps, didn't make much difference. And the third day, and on the third day it finished and he was also sweating profusely. And the person I was working for said, there's something wrong with this horse. Right. And he took it. And yes, indeed, it had not a tumor on the brain, but a, a huge tumor in its stomach. Oh. And, and that, has been, that has been my experience. Um, since then, I've, I've been more sensitive to horses and horses that like that very often actually have something wrong with them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. I, I think I had read somewhere a statistic that 80% of training problems are actually physical problems that haven't been understood by the humans, that there's something underlying, there's pain usually, and a reason why they can't respond to traditional methods. Um, and, and of course, a lot of the pain is either from the mouth or from the back, the, the, the mouth or the back, the, cause, the, the reason is the same as people try and pull horses together. Mm. And as you pull horses together and you're sitting on the, the arch of their back and, uh, uh, cranking up nosebands and all the rest, you are taking away that horse's freedom and they might become compliant, they might become submissive, but that's not what we want. No. And when you're talking about um, uh, giving a horse freedom, which is where we came in on this little section, uh, when we talk about giving a horse freedom, that's one of the reasons why uh, I invented the Micklem Bridle, because it was evident that the type of cranked up nosebands that are used cause pain, take away a horse's freedom, freedom to express, uh, and in particular, um, put pressure on various nerve points. Uh, and with the teeth, the upper jaw teeth being wider than the lower jaw teeth, putting, uh, creating a real problem within the cheeks of the horse's mouth. So that's important, that's freedom. Mm -hmm. And then as you go on, the, the rider has to give the horse freedom. So there are key things about the rider. The rider must have a good balance and we can talk about the, the balance that's required for the various activities. Uh, but that's not the key thing. The key thing is when I use the word harmony. Right. The key thing is that your hands go with the movement of the horse's mouth, your legs go with the movement of the horse's side. And if you're sitting down, the seat goes with the movement of the horse's back. Um, and there are a lot of horses, as you know, in other disciplines, apart from sport horses, eventing, dressage, show jumping, where they deliberately stop them moving in the back. They don't want them to move in the back. Um, and, and that itself creates a, a lot of problems. But people talk about following the movement of the head and neck. I say, no, you go with. And there is the world of difference. Of when you say go with the movement of the horse's head and neck as opposed to follow, it just changes your attitude totally. And as regards the horse and his comfort through his mouth and uh, through the bit or through the, the bit of his bridle, that's super important, super mm -hmm. important. Mm -hmm. And I, I have no truck with the people who take away the freedom of the horse um, because they're bullies. They just want to make the horse submit. 
And again, early on in my career, I saw a, a Grand Prix dressage rider bully a horse in an arena and bully a horse in an arena. And it went on and on. And eventually he was in walk and the horse couldn't stop the horse. The horse just walked and walked and put its head in the bushes that, that were at the side of the arena. Oh. And he just stuck his head and neck in there. And he said, that's my way of hiding from you. Oh, you know, yeah. And then worse than that, I've already told you a couple of bad stories, but worse than that, um, two, two people I knew well, both lost their lives, but one, in my opinion, directly because of a bullying type of dressage, where the horse rebelled, and then when it was jumping, he did the same rebelling. Uh, and then one where a horse was made very mechanical, uh, a horse that had a, what I call a fifth leg, um, which was a good cross-country horse, but by the wrong sort of training, it became very mechanical. And it said, instead of, I'm going to take responsibility for assess it, looking at this fence and assessing it, the horse was saying, okay, I will just listen to you. Right. And of course, it's, it's a recipe for disaster. And this poor person, they, they lost their life. Right. I, I and even if you, even if you say, you can't directly say that in either case. There must be some variable, other variables, et cetera. It certainly contributed to it. Absolutely. So as a coach, so as a coach, I can't stand by and ignore that. You know, as if, it, if, there's, if it contributes to uh, a lack of safety, then we have to do things in a different way. Mm -hmm. So uh, I talk about harmony with the rider and I also talk a lot about the, the word purity by which I mean that the horse needs to go in a pure way. The Germans use a, 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 the same word to mean, or, or the word which translates it purity, to mean that the horse has to go with natural paces, not just natural outline, but natural paces. So if the horse is to go into, in, if the whole way the horse goes is going to be natural, you have to uh, allow that. And that means you can't just tie them together with a piece of string you can't you can't kick and pull at the same time it just makes the horse less of an athlete and you lose that purity if this is resonating with you and you've ever felt a little lost as you navigate conflicting data from horse pros across the disciplines all claiming to have their own methods or recipes for making magic with horses and you want the clarity and confidence to make sense of it all i have a roadmap for you check out our foundation course Consider it Horsecraft 101, from amateur to magician, making magic with horses. A unique group coaching program with live online support that helps adult amateurs from non-horsey families who are seeking understanding and connection become the best stewards for their horses in nine weeks without conflicting data, lack of knowledge, or not knowing where to go to for help. So they understand how and why horses think and react the way they do to create a relaxed and confident relationship. If you're still on the fence, we have a freebie for you. If you're ready, so are we. You can get started at themagicofhorsecraft.com. Until then, take a chance and remember, anything is possible. And on that point, if I could just create an image for you, knowing that you're a daredevil, I'm sure when you were, I'm sure when you were not so much younger than this, you would climb up on a shed if there was a shed anywhere nearby, because you get a good view from that shed. But can you imagine climbing up on top of a rickety shed? 
And as you were got to the top of the shed and were enjoying yourself, to your horror, the shed started to fall because of your weight on the top. Now, if you grab it and it was falling, if you like, uh, to your left over there, my left here, and you went to that corner and said, I'm going to pull up on that corner and that will make the shed stay upright. <laughs> it doesn't work, does it? No. The whole thing still falls down. But we have this idea that we can sit on a horse and it's losing its balance. And we think that by pulling on the rein or putting our weight in a particular direction, that we can save its balance. We can't. It needs the head and neck to, to save yeah. its balance. Yeah. The only thing we can do with our aids and with the rein is to ask the horse to slow down, which is a very good way of helping the horse to, to save its balance. But just pulling on the reins is in fact counterproductive. Yeah. And you see, in, you see this in good racing all the time. We have, as you know, the, 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 the national hunt racing over steeplechase fences. And uh, you get uh, the ex-champion jockey, Ruby Walsh, you know, time after time after time on some of the best galloping, fastest three-mile uh, three chases in the land, there he would be with no rain contact, galloping down to fences, with no rain contact. And when you give, it's, 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 I talk about it as a bit of a contract, and when you give the horse the, the ability to take his share of the responsibility, his half of the contract is to look at the fence and make adjustments to look after you, then everything is totally different. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think um, it's brought up the idea of training them with choice and um, encouraging them to make a choice and immediately rewarding when that's the choice you're looking for. Um, rather than taking control of every minute of them uh, and every minute movement they make, which is so important with cross country riding. If you're galloping down to a solid obstacle, at some point you're gonna make a mistake in the presentation to the horse and it's gonna have to make a decision quickly to extricate both of you from the trouble you've got it in. And if we are um, controllers of the minutia, the horse won't have the ability to make that decision and save us. I was certainly lucky to get a horse that had a lot of uh, opportunity in his early life for freedom of choice. So O'Reilly had spent three seasons in Ireland. Um, I guess as a three-year-old, you would typically hilltop them, is that right? And then hunting in his four and five-year-old year. year. Um, and so he'd come across every kind of obstacle on a long reign um, with an Irish farmer that let him make decisions. And that uh, certainly saved me when I was competing um, as a youngster, kind of really pushing our depths against um, some really well-made and fancy horses. This little crossbred Irish draft that looked like he should be pulling something ended up very competitive and saved me a number of times. Um, thank you for sharing so many of those stories. We've combined beautifully, you've looked at what horsemanship looks like. Um, one of my rules of horsemanship, the never holler woe in a tight spot, um, as well as providing horses with what they need in terms of movement and freedom to graze and eat little and often. You've combined so many things beautifully into 
those stories. Um, you know that uh, never holler woe in a tight spot, I think has served me well. And it came from a chuck wagon racer of all people. <laughs> um, and I would hear my dad say it uh, in so many different situations, whether it was handling a horse that needed to be immobile for a veterinary treatment and it was under stress and managing that without locking down on it and, and forcing it into immobility. Um, or if it was perhaps down the road for a young horse the first time and a car was approaching, don't you know, slow down, slow down, slow down, let it move forward, trot forward, maybe even canter and the horse is gonna feel more comfortable about what's approaching. So that one really, I think served me well. Um, and uh, I, I wanted to talk a, a little bit about, um, I wanna keep it on the sunny side so that our stories are, are positive, but sometimes you need a bit of contrast to that. And there are some methods um, in the horse world that are used and accepted uh, as maybe natural horsemanship. Um, I was at a demonstration where someone who's quite famous for turning around horses that would otherwise go to the slaughterhouse. So they've been ruined by humans and they're dangerous to work with. And they claimed their methods were much like one stallion would treat another stallion in the herd. And they claimed that since it didn't cause physical pain, it was okay. So they tied a horse to something unbreakable and um, had a bull whip to either side of the horse's quarters while the horse flailed on the end of the lead rope and panicked and panicked and panicked and just kept doing it, not touching the horse. And eventually the horse stopped pulling and stopped and lowered its head. And we were told the end result was relaxation, that that horse recognized that this was a stallion that was in charge of its safety and it didn't need to fight back and let that human be the leader and that what we were witnessing was relaxation. But I've since done a deep dive into nervous system, um, uh, what's actually going on, the science of nervous system regulation and the science of nonverbal communication. And we recognize now that those horses that are in that state that could be mistaken for relaxation are actually in shutdown. So their nervous system which initially would go, um, humans would be fight, uh, flight, or freeze. Horses tend typically not to fight, but straight to flight. And then if they don't have that option, then it's freeze, sort of victim mode. So same thing for human um, neurobiology, um, nervous system reactions. They are submitting to a captor. But in the future, that horse can come unglued again. So if you train it with methods like that and have success, you could sell it on to someone and then it could come unglued again. And also if you apply these methods, I was watching him do this demonstration with a little quarter horse cross and he was mentally a horse that's prone to giving in. They're typically bred for these ones for ranch work and for being submissive. And physically they weren't so big and strong that they could break that rope anyway. But applying these methods as my dad did growing up learning from cowboys, um, he wasn't behind the horse with the whip, but uh, one of the first things you would do with a young horse would be teach it to tie and tie it to an unbreakable post with unbreakable materials. 
And again, he worked with ranch horses. And he tried this with our first really lovely, exceptionally well-bred athletic horse that was to be mine. And as a two-year-old, he didn't have the, the same um, mental makeup that would allow him to give up. He only knew fight to the death, never give up, never submit, because we bred him to be an event, a bent horse, never give up. And he was, his spine was injured uh, too badly and he did need to be put down. So one of the things that I aim to bring, not today on, in our discussions so much, but is some understanding of how our nervous systems um, interact, um, the difference between freeze and relaxation, and I'm okay with this. And so that people can maybe decipher when they're choosing their coaches and their horse trainers, um, what the methods are that they're using and, and they can see what the results are for, the, for themselves. Um, so one of the things that uh, I'm learning in this sentient communication and this nonverbal communication is uh, about energy fields and how much horses can actually take from that. And I wondered if you ever um, thought that your horses could read your thoughts or, or knew what you felt, or if you think that's kind of woo-woo, if you have any stories um, about that sort of thing. No, I don't, <laughs> I don't think that's woo-woo woo -woo at all. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, uh, in, in very simple ways, everything we do about horses um, can be read in the same way that they are very aware of other horses in the herd. So anybody who's um, looked at um, horses interacting with each other, you know, they notice a little lifting of the lips. They notice an ear going back. They notice small sounds. And I think there's absolutely no question that um, if somebody is tight and tense and even maybe talking in an ag aggressive way, moving short and sharp, um, uh, moving in a way which does not respond to how the horse is moving, that, then that worries the horse. There can be a little bit of a dance between a young horse and a human being. And when the young horse realizes that the human being is responding to them, then it immediately creates a connection. But the key word which you you used actually is is acceptance and submission are the key words it is very easy to get a horse to submit and the method you described there is exactly what they do in the main with elephants uh, putting them in a very small cage and then whacking them with branches oh. until they submit an elephant has probably got a little more spirit than the horse but the mm. the, the, end, the end result is exactly the same and, and I believe that in my experience, that once you've got a horse to submit in that way, you actually take away some of that horse's spirit for its life. In, in fact, you, you can't change it back again. Uh, the, the horse is a first time learner. Right. That's a very important phrase. The horse is a first time learner. So whatever it learns, first of all, tends to stay with it. Yes, you can modify it. But those early lessons are all important because, of course, in, 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 in the wild, they need to pick up on their early lessons. They need to learn where there's danger and where there's not danger. Very important indeed.
Now, at the bottom of the dressage test, you're well aware, they said a mark out of 10 for, for submission. And I've always, for years and years and years, said we should talk about acceptance, not submission. There's a, a big difference between the two. And with acceptance, there is a choice. The horse has a choice of accepting or not. With submission, there is no choice whatsoever. Now, um, there are very good examples in the dressage world, particularly with Carl Hester and what he's done, uh, Charlotte Dujardin, at the highest level of dressage. Um, the horses are, you look at the film of their, their tests and look at the films of the tests, even 12 years ago and 16 years ago, they have had a huge influence on Grand Prix dressage. So the horses are more accepting, genuinely. The horses are happier. There is less bullying. Yes, less uh, youth, use of strength. And that's fantastic. And the same applies, I think, probably in the, the greatest sport of all in terms of getting good horsecraft ship. <laughs> well, that's is horse trials. And uh, I don't know whether you were able to see at the weekend, last weekend, Boyd Martin win the new five-star in Maryland in, in the USA. It's worthwhile looking uh, on YouTube at his cross-country round and on cue. It is fantastic. There is genuine harmony, genuine acceptance of horse and rider from beginning to end. It's a beautiful picture. and. Carl Hester's test at uh, the Olympic Games and Charlotte's test to her horse was a little bit more tense, but Carl did a fantastic job on his horse. But overall, their horses go with this acceptance and should be rewarded. Mm -hmm. And of course, in North America, you were led down this road at an earlier stage because of the influence of Bert Denemethy. Right. Now it, 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 it came together with a number of other things that have always happened in America. You know, it, it, the, 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 the ground was fertile. But in Burton Emothy's early teams, with Joe Fargis, Greg Best, Conrad Humfeld, those sort of people, um, um, they rode in a way that the Europeans did not ride, and it was easier, and it was more yeah. natural. But it, we've come full circle. Then the, the, everybody had to ride in a Germanic way. But even the top Germans now are riding in a lighter way. And of course, they have to go faster against the clock. They're sitting stiller. The, it, the, there's a minimum amount of a movement, a minimum amount of change. They don't want to distract the horse. So the top show jumping riders are fantastic. And I think as a result, the, top, the horses are much happier. And you see, again, some very, very, very beautiful rounds. I mean, the, in the Tokyo Olympic Games, the top 10 in the horse trials and the top 10 in the show jumping, um, uh, the, the, the rounds that they did, I think I've never seen such high quality rounds. Beautiful. And interestingly, three of those horses in the show jumping did not have shoes. Yeah, wasn't that remarkable? Now, the farrier would say that that was purely for the artificial surface, not for grass, and it's not for every horse, but there were three horses without shoes, including Peter Fredrickson, and he's one of that group of riders who I'd say rides beautifully, trains beautifully, gets acceptance, and gets purity, natural way of going, natural paces, which is 
which, which is absolutely fantastic. So the three main competition disciplines have made, I think, great strides. I would, I would be very encouraged by it. Yes. And then we just had to be careful as, you know, these, these sports, particularly the show jumping becomes um, more and more popular and the money gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And obviously when money gets bigger and bigger, there's a problem. Mm -hmm. I often I often talk about the or mention the old philosophical um, story of the man who a wealthy man on board boat, but the boat gets into very bad weather and then it begins to sink. So he straps round himself 200 pounds weight of gold round his middle because he doesn't want to lose that. And he gets in the lifeboat, but unfortunately the lifeboat turns upside down and he goes into the water. And that's where they find him at the bottom of the sea with, yeah. his, with his gold around his middle. So the question is, did he have the gold or does the gold have him? Oh. And, and you have to relate this to horse riding is who is sitting on the horse and training this horse? Is it, is it, is it you with a well-rounded holistic attitude to horses or is it the ego and the demands of, of high-level competition work uh, and, and, and dreams which just have to be met now. And in, you know, in the latter case, your horse is probably going to go worse. Probably you're going to win fewer competitions. You won't not get to such a high level. But if you go back to a more holistic approach, the person who's riding that horse is somebody who has education somebody who's prepared to take time, somebody who's prepared to do things in a simple, sunny way, then we're really winning. I wanna, you just said simple and sunny, and I would like you to share with uh, our audience your three rules, keep it. Well, I, I, I have many, I have a number of rules. Yes. And I would, to introduce it on a, in a more practical way, I'd say um, I have, I have, uh, three F's, which I start with, which I teach in every, every, every single lesson I teach, always done. And I did it with you, whether you knew it or not, at Glen Eagles all those years ago. Number one is to go forwards. Mm -hmm. One of your colleagues in Glen Eagles wasn't always keen on going forwards. You wanted control, first of all. But anyway, number one is to go forwards. So the horse and the rider have to mentally, they have to willingly think forwards and physically go forwards. It's, it's what everything else springs from. If you're not going forward, you're going nowhere. Um, uh, number two is feel. So all the time, we've mentioned feel already, all the time, I as a coach will be saying, how did that feel? Yes. But it doesn't matter that their feel may be different from what I see, but you keep encouraging them to feel what's going on. And then the only way you can give um, helps to the horse, aids to the horse in an efficient way is with good feel. Because with good feel, you do the right thing at the right time. So you have to have feel. So forwards and feel. And then the third F is fifth leg, which is what I talked, we've been alluding to a little bit with the cross country work and with purity. The, the horse will look after you. The horse will have this proverbial fifth leg to look after you when you're in trouble, if you allow it to do so. Yes. So this, this, this preparation for the Olympic cross country starts on those early lessons where you learned to go with your horse. 
You learned to be in harmony with your horse, where you learned to come down a line of fences without a rain contact, et cetera, et cetera. So forwards, feel, and fifth leg. So that makes every sense. It's not a horseman you would find in the world. It doesn't matter what sport it is, you wouldn't agree you should go forwards. There's not a horseman you would, a horse person you wouldn't find in the world who wouldn't say that feel is super important. And then as regards fifth leg, natural outline, natural way of going, purity, treat horses as horses, empathy. Nobody would argue with that. So I'll give you another three that I will say are just as important in a different way. And that is safety, simplicity, and then being sunny. Safe, simple, and sunny. Now, safety is a, a, a no-brainer. Although people like you and me probably stretch the boundaries of, of safety very often, but it just means to be do, trying to do things in a progressive way, trying to assess the potential risks, preparing yourself, having the right equipment, etc. But progression of exercises, as much as anything else, is is is, is related to safety. Um, now, simplicity. Uh, if, I, if, if the program breaks, if, if our connection breaks down now, and we finish our conversation now. We've said the most important thing. Simplicity is the most powerful of all of the things that we should be aiming for as we ride and work with horses in every single discipline, every single discipline. And simplicity does that great thing. Not only does it make it easier for the rider, but most importantly, when we're in horse sports, it makes it easier for the horse. Mm -hmm. And we forget this, you know, I'm trying to sell as a coach of other of coaches from other disciplines. I keep working on the simplicity as well. But with horse sports, we have this double whammy of greatness about the word simplicity, because if it's more simple, it's easier for the horse to do. It. And the horse needs things to be simple. And then sunny to be uh, generous, to be in good form, use a, uh, that, that expression in good form, meaning, meaning our head is in a good place. Um, it, all the time in terms of working with horses, they can feel that. And mm. the, rider who's, the rider who's tense, the rider who loses that sunniness is, is, is a real problem. But all of these three work together. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's an important consideration. So take, people say to me, how can it work together? How can being more simple and more sunny make us safer? I'll take sunny first of all. If you are sunny in your head, if you're relaxed in your head, this wonderful thing between our ears, the brain, works so much better. When we are tense, when we're in difficulties, how many people have lost the way that they're going when they're driving the, driving the car? How many people have left an ingredient out when they're cooking something terribly important to impress somebody else, et cetera, et cetera? How many people can't think, oh my God, I've lost this person's name? All sorts of things. By staying in our place at a mindfulness, your brain works much better. And particularly with horse riding, when in difficult situations, a quick reaction makes all the difference in terms of safety and thinking particularly of cross-country riding. Right. So many riders do so many daft things across country because they're all tense, because they're frightened, because they're overriding. But if you're a good mind, you become safer. Then if you are uh, if you make things simple, safer because it's quicker to do, but it's particularly it's easier for the horse to understand. And then 
if you are, um, if you, uh, let's if, if you if you want to make yourself sunnier, do things in a simple way. Who's not happier when things are done in a simple way? It doesn't take long. And if if you want to make yourself sunnier, do it in a safe way. So the more you think about this, you suddenly see this connection of the three. They are absolutely key. Now I think increasingly we're because of uh, insurance, health and safety, we're probably a little better on the safety, a little better on the safety. We are still a long way with the simplicity to go. Right. And we don't make a sufficient emphasis all the time on being sunny. Right. You know, um, it, it's the happiness thing. Too many children worry about or, or, or about what they haven't got as opposed to making use of the things that they have got. Absolutely. It's, change, it's, changing, our, it's changing our whole attitude to, to start appreciating our world as it is and all of the wonderful things which are not dependent on the latest toy or the latest pair of smart boots or the latest brushing boots, et cetera, et cetera. Yes, thank you for that. So, the three S's are super important. Yeah. And I would, um, I'm going to add three more. I'm going to add okay. three more for added value. We, we talk about PBs all the time. And, you know, in terms of, I mentioned about you, have a go, have another go. When you have another go, what you're trying to do is create a new PB. Right. And a new world record at the end of the day is, is only another new PB. So PB is understood, personal best, and the, the marathon has done fantastic work in making people understand the value of a personal best. So we have a personal best, but I have another two others, a PA and a PC. So we've got PA, PB, PC. So PA is personal action. Okay. We are gonna get nowhere unless you throw yourself into this, you get out of bed and you say, I'm gonna make the best of this day. And you can make it even, even better. You can say, I'm going to make the best of this morning. And mm -hmm. you will find that when you make the best of the morning, you've often made the best of the whole day because it just keeps going. But we can't get anywhere unless we put our heart and soul into it and try and do something. So PA. And as we try and do it, we get a personal best. And then PC is confidence. Personal oh. confidence. Personal confidence. And it relates to this whole business of the imposter syndrome. We have to find ways to allow ourselves to be confident in, in, in who we are and who we might be. Uh, and it's when we talk about who we might be, I, I often talk about the, the yin and the yang of realities and possibilities. So yes, we, we don't find things too easy. The reality is we're at a pretty low level. But we must at the same time look at the possibilities. Right. And this is the job of the coach. Yes, these are the realities. Not to get angry about the fact that a horse or a rider is at a low level. These are the realities. Now, what is the road to get to those possibilities? What are the possibilities? And depending on the type of horse and depending on the type of person and what they wish to do, et cetera, those possibilities may vary. But it, it's, it, to me, as a coach, suddenly coaching is so easy because they, you've, you've looked at them and you've done a good job at assessing the realities. And that, it takes a lot of expertise to do that. But you assess the realities. And it's just so exciting because then you can see this road 
or roads that people can take, the possibilities. And uh, as, a, as, a, as an individual person begins to realize that, then they get more and more confidence. And of course, a horse getting confidence is exactly the same as a, a rider getting confidence. It grows to this thing called courage. And you get all sorts of people like me, who was a nervous, timid young man, timid young boy, didn't want to ride the, 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 the more difficult horses, et cetera, et cetera. Didn't like this, didn't like that. As you get more confident in your own area, you can show great courage. Right. You know, they talk about, they talk about um, uh, um, making a presentation in front of people, talking in front of people, a speech mm -hmm. in front of people, as being one of the three most terrifying things in the life of many people. But if you do it progressively, suddenly you can say you've got courage I said god I'm delighted about this I've got courage <laughs> and I think courage is defined not as a lack of fear but doing something in spite of it and then when you do something in spite of fear you grow confidence and then all of a sudden you have more scope don't you yeah more and more scope so I'd, I'd like to just draw attention to those again so it's keep it simple safe and sunny and there was number one sorry to interrupt i do and i use these little groupings so that people can remember the things right because i've been to so many talks so many presentations and and i work i work hard by making notes etc but how much do we remember of various presentations how much do we remember of things so i think it's i try and get added value from my teaching and coaching by using these little acronyms so number one is safety safety first safety the heart of training is simplicity and then you can think about being sunny I, I, I don't think you can necessarily a young coach can do all of these things all together but you can allow yourself to relax and be sunny and gradually if you if it, it, it looks as though there's a gap in your coaching prowess that you're in fact not very sunny then you have to work specifically at that and then the three f's were, were forwards feel and fifth leg and fifth leg, people say, may be difficult to understand. But as soon as you think about it as fifth leg, letting the horse be a horse, letting the horse look after you, allowing the horse to go in a natural way, natural outline, natural way of going, uh, suddenly it becomes clear what I'm talking about. Mm, thank you. Um, a few things that I'm drawing from these last stories are, uh, they come in nicely with some of our principles. So... Um, in my lifetime, Germanic riding has come to mean different things. It doesn't bring to mind the same image and style anymore as it did in the 70s and 80s. Um, it has changed. And I think um, Maya Angelou's saying of do the best you can until you know better, then when you know better, do better, um, applies strongly in the, in the horse world. Um, and it's beautiful to see people at the top of the sport evolving. And um, one thing that caught my attention in the Fs, the keeping it forward, um, you maybe work with such high level people, um, maybe people with different with all backgrounds, all, all of them, you do work with all of them, but to you forward was like, nobody's going to argue that forward is is the answer and unfortunately I've witnessed the opposite where where without maybe the right knowledge people 
approach a problem by slowing down, controlling, slow down, slow down and control that force. And almost always like 99% of the time, if in doubt, Ford will fix it. I think I wanted to just touch on that. To but it, it's forward. It's so everything, everything is a progression. You start off by going forwards in walk. Yes. yes. So, so, so everything is a progression. There's no point going forwards in Kanto when you're in just a ride. Right. So, right. I mean, it, the, everything is a progression, but it's it's amazing how you say you come across some people who are not thinking like that, not doing that. Um, it happens at the highest level when mm -hmm. when this forwardness, this forward attitude, is forgotten. Right. And one of the one of the students, one of my early students in the, in the United States of America was Karen Lende. And when I met her, she was um, 14, I think. And what a talent. And she had a Connemara pony called Erin's Shamrock. You can't get more Irish than that. But to see her come down to a cross-country fence on Erin's Shamrock was absolutely magic. And, you know, did it in a very natural way with real forwardness very very good harmony and of course Erin Shamrock had a brain and a half and could read the situation from a long way out the end result was a fantastic picture now what happens with these so many people is that you get training and you get overtraining and you get paralysis by analysis so there's a downside even for somebody like Karen O'Connor is to work out your way forward because you lose some of that natural way of doing things. Now, she uh, proved over, I think it's 14, it could be 15 years, that she was the USA's leading event rider, that she did a pretty good job of keeping the forwardness. Mm -hmm. But um, I will never forget in 2010, I'm not very good at years, uh, the World Championships in Kentucky, um, Lexington, Kentucky, and Karen was on the American team, and it wasn't just on the American team, she was riding Mandiva, which was a horse that I bred. So how wonderful to have my horse, my ex-student, going around the cross-country course together. But as she fired off around the cross-country course, I saw the same Karen O'Connor that rode Aaron Shamrock in Massachusetts all of those years before. And it was a, just a wonderful sight. The two of them, again, I use this word, in harmony. She did not distract the horse, but the horse was given courage by the way that she, the horse was ridden. And the exercise became very easy over what was a very challenging course in, ver on a very, in very hot conditions. And related to that, Mandiba uh, also bred a horse called High Kingdom, who was Mandiba's full brother. And at the 2012 Olympic Games, Zara Phillips was riding him and the British team, obviously it's in London, they're expected to do well. The cross country course was very difficult in the sense of making the time because it was on a golf course going up and hill, down, dale, little corners, et cetera, et cetera. And um, uh, there've been many people in the past at championships events where you're encouraged to be, because you don't want to make a real mess up on the television, is to be a bit cautious is to err on the side of caution. But I gather that Yogi Breisner, who was the chef coach of the British team, got them together on the morning of the event and he had assessed the course, he knew what the dressage scores were. And he said the three Fs, so another F, fast, forwards, and fearless. 
fast forwards and fearless. And to see Zara Phillips, who's a very good cross-country rider anyway, but to see her on, and again, a horse that I bred, High Kingdom, going up uphill, down dale, the turns and all the rest, fast forward and fearless, it brought a tear to my eye. It was quite wonderful. Yes. Quite wonderful. And uh, uh, so I'm, I'm just saying these, you know, Bert Denemothy, I think I remember him saying that every day you had to go back to the basics, even if you were an international rider. That's so true. You have to go back to the basics. And you'll see a lot of the show jumping riders putting poles on the ground at a set distance and just go through their A, B and Cs just to, just to get back again, just to get in the groove. And when you're in the groove, then, 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 then everything's fantastic. And that whether you're riding a, a dressage test or a show jumping track or a cross country track, at the end of the day, if your preparation is good, all you need to do is number one, get the right direction, and number two, get the right speed. Mm -hmm. The right direction and the right speed. And when, when your horse is prepared and you are prepared, that's all you have to concentrate on, then it's a magic result, but that's the way that it should be. And that's why when you're winning a, winning a round against the clock show jumping, you just get the right direction and the right speed. It gives you a chance. There's not, you don't want to start overthinking. You don't want to keep changing things. You've got to keep it simple. And uh, Spencer Wilton, who's a Grand Prix rider in Britain, I was delighted to see a quote in the Horse and Hound the other day, that when he goes into his Grand Prix test, all he thinks about is getting the right direction and the right speed. And then you watch Boyd um, uh, or uh, Nick Price go around a cross-country course, the right direction, the right speed, the rest of the preparation has been done. Right, yeah. Um, a few words stood out again. Um, we're using the word magic. Some, it does appear to be magic. And I think when um, the muggles in the horse world, so new people that are entering the horse world for the first time are looking at that magic, they might think, how am I ever going to get a piece of that? How does somebody develop feel? And I think that if um, we take from our talk today, the importance of understanding the animal, and then our three F's and our keep it safe, simple and sunny. Um, and this personal accountability, um, confidence. We had PA, keep personal best and personal confidence. These things will come. The, so but those are, yes, that, 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 that's the framework. And then, but then you have to, with, you have to have something to do so that comes back to the progression. Right. So everything is important to me. There is a way to mount and dismount that is super safe and super flexible. You know, they'll allow you to vault on and vault off later on. There's a, a way to do the early work that will allow you to get to a higher level if you want to get to a higher level. So there's a progression all the way through and none of it, you might get a so-called magic result, but none of it is magic. No. There's, there's sense behind it, there's logic behind it, there's a progression behind it. And that's where a good coach comes in because you can stand on the shoulders of giants, you can get that information. And I think it's important that you people try and go to somebody who has a real breadth and depth of knowledge. Mm -hmm. And obviously, if you're saying you want somebody with breadth and depth of knowledge, there is no better 
than to find somebody who's been trained in all three of the disciplines that make up horse trials. Right. Now, you might not want to do horse trials, you might not want to do show jumping or dressage, that's totally fine. But the, the skills and abilities that that person will have are applicable to yes. all activities. All absolutely. Activities. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and in future discussions, we're going to look a little bit at what feel is. And um, for those of us that have a hard time attaining it, um, there's some tricks and nervous system science and understanding that may allow people to have those breakthroughs. And we're going to tackle those in some future discussions. Okay. Um, I sure appreciate your time today, William. This has been magic. I really appreciate it. Um, do you have anything you'd like to add before we say goodbye today? Well, where do we start and where do we stop? And oh. um, I think if I can go to North America, and um, I only came across this fairly recently, and most other people would have come across it probably earlier on if they were in the horsey world in North America. But the word tranquility, mm. and it's a word which, funnily enough, is in the American military manual, and where, where it is said that um, anything that is achieved with the horse without tranquility is defective right nothing achieved without tranquility is defective in other words it needs as soon as it has tranquility then you can say yes that's that's a that's a good road anything and achieved where did that come from who wrote that but but chamberlain oh can you hear me bert chamberlain, chamberlain. harry chamberlain and colonel but he wrote, he wrote the manual, but how yes. lovely in a military manual that was written at that time, you know, in a, in a time when there were world wars, that you could think like that. And that's why I say that Bert and Emothy came to ground in America, which was, which was ready to take off in terms of doing things in a good way, in a more stylish way, in a nicer way with horses. And, and, and Chamberlain was one of the people that made that possible. But tranquility, it's a well, good thank one. God for Colonel Chamberlain and thank God for you. Horses all over the world, thank you with your thoughtfulness um for sharing the Micklem bridle with the world and the knowledge about how a horse's face is built and our traditional equipment was working against that and causing pain um riders and horses thank you the world over and i certainly do thank you for being a friend and mentor and for continued haha there it is it's always at hand there we go there's, there's there's the bottom jaw of a horse yes. here's the top jaw my other hand there and you can see the difference in the wits yes and that's where that's where it all started from and riders the world over no matter which equestrian discipline are using these bridles both at the uh, grassroots level out hacking and in racing and in international arenas um yeah should definitely check out the Micklem Bridle and at, give at, your horse at Maryland the three the three at Maryland the three star championships, uh, won by Kurt and I can't remember his surname. Isn't that terrible? He used the Micklem Bridle. 
Mm-hmm. So a big, a big pat on the back of the hand for not remembering his surname, but um, he won using a, a Micklin bridle. And recently, one of our top flat races of the year, the Sun Chariot races, which is a flat race, a group one for thousands and thousands and thousands of pounds, was won by a horse called Saffron Beach um, wearing a Micklin bridle. So I was delighted by that. And then you go... Then I will go out later tonight and I will see a little 11 hand pony going with a little child in a Micklin bridle. And I, or I go to Festina Lente, which is an organization I'm involved with, with people who face big challenges in their life. And we have 20 horses and 10 ponies and every single one goes in the Micklin bridle in one variation or another. And it makes me very happy. Sunny. Sunny, sunny. <laughs> when I was there in Scotland in 1989, you were starting your development of this bridle. And so a, another mm. message then is um, to not give up and put the time in because it took a long time to get to where it spread all over the world, but it's all over the world now. It takes time. <laughs> it takes time. Yeah. Well, you okay. spend your time Paige, well. Thank you. It's great to see you. You too. Thank you, William. Say hi to your say hi to your parents, please. I will do. Hi to your wife and children. I appreciate <laughs> your time. Take care. Hey, you're still here. Thanks so much for listening. What you think and feel matters. If this resonated with you, please like and share. It truly makes a difference. I encourage you to engage with the content on my Substack account and my socials, all at the Magic of Horsecraft where you can join the discussion and shape the future shows. Tell me what you want to hear more of or less of, and we'll evolve together as we grow a community of like-minded souls here for the good of the horse. If you're an adult amateur horse lover looking for confidence and clarity in your role of equine steward, check out my course, From Amateur to Magician, Making Magic with Horses at themagicofhorsecraft.com. Until then, I'm here to remind you of a couple things. One, underneath it all, We all want the same things, to be heard, understood, and accepted for who we are. And two, anything is possible. Take a chance.